0: Guide to the Apocalypse. In our first season, you and I are uncovering what the archetype of the apocalypse has to teach us, particularly in these times of disruption, pain, and uncertainty. As we explore the psychological meaning, we're going to dive deep into your inner world so you can discover where and how you need to grow. I'm your host, Jen, a licensed professional counselor, M. Div Earner, and all around curious soul. My mythical lawyers want me to remind you that all the information in this podcast is most definitely not a substitute for help from a licensed mental health professional. If you enjoy this podcast, do me a favor and rate, review, and subscribe. Okay, enough of that business. Let's dive in. Why, as for that answered Oz. I think you are wrong to want a heart. It makes most people unhappy. If you only knew it, you are in luck not to have a heart. And truthfully, for all that he was a very bad wizard, Oz certainly had a point. Having a heart can be excruciating and exhilarating. It does seem like you can't have one without the other, though. In this week's episode, we're headed, in a somewhat circuitous way, back to the classroom. The stage where most of my dilemmas have arisen. And today we're going to talk about what it means to take your heart out to examine it. And then what happens when you put it back inside again. In our 13th episode, we're allowing ourselves the space to acknowledge the trauma that sits with us every day. So ordinary, it's easy to ignore. They gave me a tote back. I gave them close to $40,000. Or maybe, maybe as Cardi B put it, I make money moves, and I make money move. In that part of my life, though, it seemed like mostly money flowed away from me rather than towards. But that's the state of the student loan crisis, I suppose. And even though it was expensive, in the end, Divinity School was a bargain for all I got in return. You see, I discovered my heart, buried under all sorts of traumatic theology and rigidity. But I'm jumping ahead, per usual. So let's rewind. I told you several weeks ago about the summer after my junior year. That summer where death beckoned to me from the cab of a six-wheeler Mack truck. Maybe an eight-wheeler. I've never actually counted. In that moment, in that summer... I held the potentiality of my death in my hands. And when I emerged, I emerged with the importance of my life. After that short stint in therapy, I went back to college for my final year, ready to take on the world and really, truly live. Though to be frank, I don't know what that really meant. (laughs) Then or now. I was just certain that I hadn't really been living up until then. I had grand dreams of working at Panera Bread, coasting through my final year of college, and getting into grad school. Back then, when I wasn't daydreaming about Panera, I daydreamed of being a professor. I'm not sure if I ever really wanted to be one, or merely I just loved the idea of it. I think in many ways, professors were the first boundaried adults i had ever met. They seem to know how to protect themselves. They had to think and read and pontificate. And I guess occasionally grade papers. To be honest, I'm still searching for a way to think, read, and pontificate, and ideally get paid for it. It might be why I started a podcast. To try to articulate the ideas I have running loose in my head. It's like I'm aiming to weave and unweave them, like Penelope waiting for Odysseus. So, I applied to grad school, as many before me have done when they really did not know what the fuck they wanted to do. And the idea of continuing to be a student, maybe even becoming a professor who seemed like a lifelong student, that felt safer than risking the unknown of whatever it was that the real world was. Figuring out where to apply it is always a process though, isn't it? This was, in so many ways, the early days of the internet. Wikipedia would have only been a kindergartner then, and I didn't know what I wanted to do. Just a sense of who I wanted to be or how I wanted to live. Which, incidentally, makes applying to grad school way more complicated. And so I, I sat with it, and I explored, and I pondered, and I read this really good book called um, What Should I Do With My Life by Poe Branson. Or Bronson, I can't remember. It's a red book. You can look it up. And I just thought, and I thought, and I thought. And in the midst of the thinking, I kept doing the business of being a college student. I went to class. I I don't actually even know what I, I went to the cafeteria. I ate waffles. I, I roamed around the campus having so much free time. And that fall of my senior year, I attended a Baptist Student Union conference. With an interesting group of people, including a campus minister I'm still convinced hates me or hated me, at least a little bit, and this other range of interesting characters, many much more normal than me. And we went on this trip, and I remember we stopped at Cracker Barrel. I still have the pictures somewhere on some lost hard drive of all of us eating hush puppies and other uh, shades of beige food and drinking the best goddamn sweet tea there is in the South. Don't come at me. It's true. And so we traveled, we traveled to this Baptist Student Union, and I I remember two moments while we were there with just utter clarity. The first was during one of those sermons that, quite frankly, I found profoundly uninspiring. I have no recollection what he was talking about or why it was important or why he was important, who knows? But, but sitting there in that sanctuary or that auditorium, it was the light again that captured me. It's always the light that somehow seems so magical to me. And so I found myself praying to a God I barely believed existed. And I desperately was wondering in myself, am I called to ministry? Now, two, side trails. For those of you not quite in the know with the jargon of evangelicalism, it's important for you to know that there is an obsession with call and vocation. It's always seemed to me that it would be a kind of uh, spiritual memo that the divine would send to you. He would outline what he thought you ought to do with your life, or I suppose if you're a Calvinist, then what you will do with your life, whether you want to or not. And That call is important, and there's even this idea that everybody has a call if only you will listen and want to know it deep enough, that God would tell you what to do, like some parent who has your best interest at heart. But God has never seemed like a parent who had my best interest at heart. At best, he was a narcissist. At worst, a total sociopath. And so for those of you who are more religious and secular, you may have caught that I said I was wondering to a God I barely believed existed. I don't know how you can make it through being a fundamentalist and come out the other side without at least questioning the existence of this being who is both all there ever will be and yet somehow less than the concrete things you know in your daily life. That God was a prick. I didn't much like him. I spent a fair amount of time, probably the equivalent, not the equivalent, I spent seven years in higher education trying to figure him the fuck out. I still haven't, which I suppose is impressive. Or maybe my whole mission was just a little grandiose. And so in that moment, in that auditorium, with that magical light, it was torn between believing in a God I did not want to exist and longing for him to exist all the same. And in that moment, I felt the voice clear within me. Yes, of course you are. Why do you keep questioning who you are? Which, I don't know, I guess it was more of a Paul on the road to Damascus, technically Saul, I know. Rather than, I don't know, the magical God cloud shining on Jesus and all of those, like, really, uh, not great pieces of art where Jesus is getting baptized by John the Baptist. It wasn't a magical moment, even though the light itself was magical. It was sort of a like, oh, fuck all right, I guess that's what we're doing. It is not really an awe-inspiring start to being called to ministry. It was a voice that was familiar. And I just felt all of this, this frustration that also was just resigned, collapsed, not able to do anything with the energy it generated in me. And I said back to the voice internally while not listening to the lackluster sermon, I said, I don't want to know who I'm supposed to be. I want to know how and why and also where. Where should I go to divinity school? There was no answer. God isn't a magic eight ball, and apparently my internal voice isn't either. That's the first moment I remember with clarity. The second moment happened after that sermon. And we proceeded to what I tend to think of as the advertising section in conferences, where booth after booth after booth offers all of these little small tokens in exchange for signing up for some list that they have. Or better yet, they get to give you a pitch for whatever it is they're selling. It's it's an old marketing technique. It gets rebranded in a variety of ways for the marketing age, but the marketing age, the digital age, which sometimes feels like the marketing age. And so I wandered booth to booth. I got a pen from Campbell. Duke offered me a sticky pad. But Wake Forest, Wake Forest offered me a conversation and a tote back. In retrospect, it seems inevitable that I would end up there, called by that mysterious voice telling me I knew who I am. And that tote bag that promised to hold more than just theology books. It promised to hold, I don't know, my heart written down on a wire-bound notebook. And so I had, secretly in my heart, sat on Mike Forrest. Duke was more prestigious. It seemed like a bigger deal to everybody I knew. And I don't know... (laughs) I'm not great at applying to multiple schools. I only applied to one school for college, two for my first grad degree. I think I applied to like four or five for my second grad degree, but hopefully I'm I'm done applying to schools. And so I only went on two tours. I went to Duke and then I went to Wake. And my mind was already made up, though I was attempting to be objective. Duke was beautiful. The chapel is majestic. And there was this kind of hush in the halls, like it was Hogwarts on a Hogsmeade weekend. But I hadn't read Harry Potter yet, so the magic was kind of lost on me. And I I sat there getting to observe a real-life graduate school class. And I I sat in Baptist church history with a renowned church historian. And all I could do was fight off my yawns. I, I suppose it was interesting but I I filled with this dissatisfaction of how narrowly minded academia can be. Lunch was all right. As was my meeting with the chair of the Baptist Studies, who was the one who taught that uh, church history class. And the Baptist Studies, uh, I don't know, department maybe at Duke was kind of a big deal because Duke is a Methodist school, for those of you not in the know. And the Methodists are very... I mean they're very methodical And so things must be done in a certain order Baptists however We're the ones who are going to bring the keg stand Or at least we used to be Before evangelicals took over everything We're the ones who are Wild uh, Flying by the seat of our pants Making shit up as we go along Duke was organized uh, Nose to the grindstone Thoughtful It just didn't fit me. And so I drove away. It was about 70-ish miles in between. And I just kept hoping that that tote bag that sat on my passenger seat would be a harbinger of good things to come. I arrived at wake the next morning. I mean, I didn't arrive the next morning. I arrived that night and I stayed at a hotel. It's very exciting. In fact, the Divinity School, I think, paid for my hotel room which again, was very exciting. I was a college student, uh, didn't have a ton of money. And uh, I got there the next morning. I had a cup of coffee in my car, so nervous. And I, I walked up to the building to discover, for any of you who have gone to seminary will know is a very common sight. I walked up to discover the ever-present tall white man who... <laughs> basically fit the hipster aesthetic. And they were nice, they were kind, and they walked me around, they asked a few questions, they explained what it was like to attend Wake, and the campus was so, so magical. It was full of green and openness, as much as Duke had been filled with silent halls, filled with somber shovels, class to class. Wake, even though it was not actually... Wake felt loud. It was vivid. It was all the colors that, that make up the jewels that you would see in not a jewelry store, but a pirate's bag filled with plunder from, from some magical island he got lost on. But I digress. So I arrived there and I fell in love. Maybe even for the first time in my life. I felt like I had found home after a very long journey away. It's Perhaps too much poetry, though. My guide, Garrett, he went on, actually, to be quite a gifted senior pastor in Texas. He had asked me long before I showed up at Wake in our email exchange about what class I would prefer to attend. Church history. Or theology. I, of course, picked theology. I will always pick theology. If it comes down to a final choice between theology and the bliss of seven heavens, I I still pick theology. And theology is the study of what makes the divine divine. And while I didn't know it, it's also the study of what makes human human. Maybe even more than the divine divine. Theology is about the human heart. And so Garrett walked me to class. It was his class, I think. I'm not positive. Maybe not. Maybe he was a first year, because he was a second year my first year. So he he was, I guess, not in that class. But I, I walked to that class, and it was filled with second years. And I sat down, hesitant, I had my Wake Forest tote bag, carrying all of my various promotional material about why this should be the school I chose, and in walked the professor who changed my life. I say that like it's some magical uh, relationship that we had, it's not. He changed many people's lives. And the life of Frank Tupper is far too complicated to delineate here. So I'll keep it brief. He was not charismatic. And truthfully, although some of his accolades will disagree with me, he was not overly articulate. He liked a lot of prose. He liked a lot of language. It would expand and just go on and on and on when really, perhaps more concisely, one or two words would have done. But that was part of the magic of Frank. There was so much that he had to offer that amplified, exalted language was the only thing that fit him. He certainly would not charm you. He often, as he taught, not in just this first class, but in the many classes I took with him, he would stare away in this thoughtful reverie, long enough for you to catch up on all the words that you were trying so hard to type, furious to catch the wisdom he dropped as frequently as his train of thought ran away from him. He was the most magical person I've ever met. And in that October, I do not remember what he was teaching about. I did not take notes. I was only a visiting prospective student. I just sat, entranced, utterly lost through so much of what he was saying maybe about the Godhead and how it was constituted, or maybe he was talking about the breath of God creating humans, aka the spirit, or maybe it was some other philosophical concept that I can only construct in my artificial memories. But I know this for certain. At some point in that class, he stopped, pausing to talk about what turns out to be a favorite topic of his, the human heart. I learned about the importance of the heart from Frank. And in that moment in the class, the only part I truly remember, and maybe in retrospect, he said it because I was there and he said it just for the new prospective students sitting there. And he said, doing theology is like taking your heart out of your chest to talk about it while depending on it at the same time. I felt his words like a punch in the gut. Like whenever I find a poem that speaks to me in words I wish I had written, like the art that catches my eye and then I have to stop, just arrested by something I cannot articulate. Like the songs that feel like they should have been written by me, even though I have no musical ability. And in those words, I could feel the truth in a way I hadn't felt since that Mack truck was barreling towards me. Frank continued to talk. He continued to talk about things I didn't understand, until he returned at the end of this lesson, at the end of the class, back to the core message that I carry with me still, that informs every therapy session I ever sit in, as therapist or client. And He did a thing that Frank always did. He looked away in the distance, and then he focused back in, like a magic eye painting where it feels like he's staring at every single person, but really he's staring at just you. And he said, The greatest temptation is to put your heart back, looking exactly the way it looked when you first took it out. Walked out of that class in a haze, thoughts swirling around me, cloaking me in curiosity. I sent in my application the next day. And when I returned, not quite a year to the day, but almost, I carried my theology books, my curiosity, and my longing to understand who I am. In not that tote bag, in a backpack I've had a very long time. On my very first day of grad school, and in my very first class, I sat down in the front row, ready to take notes and take my heart out to examine it, in the light of calling, invocation, and really, the existential meaning of it all. I learned so much from Frank, though I'm still trying to puzzle out the mystery of the heart. Frank died in February. It was before COVID, before the apocalypse began in earnest, before anyone was really ready for him to go, except maybe for him. And even though he always used to say that the book of Revelation is a happy hunting ground of every kook, I like to pretend that he'd not fault me too much for spending time here in revisiting this haunting ground of mine. As I wrote this, I, I felt inside myself like I wanted to talk more about what he taught me, but then I thought, no, I want to talk less about what he taught me, but what, but what can I say about Frank? What can I say about Divinity School? And all of this opened up this free fall zone as I asked myself, what does it mean to take your heart out? What did Frank mean by that? What do I mean by that? And how does the idea and the metaphor of it change over the course of time? It's a metaphor I use often with clients, because in some ways it feels like they haven't learned to take their heart out. And so they pay me, essentially, to stick my hand into their chest and pull it out. I try to do it gently, but it's a violent gesture you have to rip your heart out to see it. You need some oomph there. And often the oomph is the crisis, is the pain, is the heartbreak, is the, is the every fucking thing that 2020 has turned out to be. As I'm recording this, Justice Ginsburg died. And not just died, but died on the new year in the Jewish calendar. Uh, and I'm not totally sure if she died on the version of New Year's Eve or actually died on New Year's because uh, I guess we don't technically know exactly when she passed. She held her heart in her hand in so many ways. And maybe today is feeling like a memorial of these people who have impacted me, impacted you perhaps, in ways that we cannot always articulately define or explain even to ourselves. I used my credit card this morning. I bought a blouse from Anthropology because of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I sat with clients and I I helped them take their hearts out to examine, to see what there is to be seen, to see the secrets they've been hiding away for so long because of Frank Tupper. And it doesn't mean that I don't participate. Certainly I do. I definitely didn't buy that shirt from Anthropology. But there's some part of me that feels the layers of these of these giants, whether personal or national, who impacted me. And today we're talking about the dilemma. And the dilemma almost always is when... Will you allow yourself to open yourself up to what is? To open yourself up to no one lives forever. No matter what Christianity says, and I guess I don't technically know what happens in the afterlife, but life, life ends. Relationships end. But what do we do in the meanwhile? The dilemma of the apocalypse is in many ways to pretend that this didn't happen, to have taken your heart out, to have examined it, and put it back in with no change made. It's tempting. It's tempting to believe that the new year will bring less horror. It's tempting to drown in despair, that things will always be this way and so much worse. It's tempting to play the victim. It's tempting to pretend that you never can be one. The dilemma... The dilemma shatters our illusions. We have to make a choice. We have to choose how we will move forward. And Choosing ignorance is no longer an option. The voice of the apocalypse is still calling... It's calling to you and it's asking you to unveil your illusions. If you will not unveil them, it will shatter them. It's asking you to get real about the shit that you play out with others. Of what you project. Of what you pretend. The apocalypse, it's not very kind. But it is true. It is honest. It is brutally beautiful that it will strip you bare it will take away every shame it will take away every fantasy it will force you to see yourself as you are there is no what, there is no why there is no how there's only the who who will you be in the wake of the death of your heroes. Who will you be when fascists plot and maneuver to take over everything? Who will you be when you have the choice, the privilege to be in some ways, anyone? You can fade back into the background. You can play small. You can choose control over power. You can choose play or fantasy or, I don't know, the Stepford Wives version of living instead of reality. You can go back to normal. Or at least you can pretend to. And that's the greatest temptation. The greatest temptation is to go on this journey of depth, to go on this journey of living, and never change. To take your heart out, to look at it, and just put it back in. To not allow yourself to grow, to mature. To be not more, but to be human, wholeheartedly, so messy. So complicated. So beautiful. When you put your heart back in, after whenever this apocalypse will end, I hope your heart will be changed. I hope you will choose to remain awake. If you don't, then that some part of you will always be stuck in the Kairos moment where the light is magical and beautiful, but you are stuck, unable to move forward, unable to risk being more than you are now. And the question always remains, in that theology class, years later when I graduated, in every goddamn therapy session that I pay for or am paid for, The question prompts me. It prompts me even if it will never prompt you. Will I go back to sleep? Will the thief invade me once again? Will I drown in books and papers and half-hearted thoughts and ignore the steady pulse of my heart? And the dilemma still haunts me. Not because it's complicated. It really isn't, but because it's painful. To stay awake is like the pinprick of all the nerves releasing from moving from compression to the brilliantly, agonizingly beautiful life. And I ask myself again, will I go back to sleep? And the voice inside doesn't tell me, Instead, it responds, Don't go back to sleep, you motherfucker. Stay awake. That's what I have for this week. We're approaching the end. Next week, we're going to explore the promise. The promise that promises something that's not quite tangible, but all the more valuable for it. I hope you'll join me then. Dude, thank you so much for hanging out, exploring your depth, and I hope allowing yourself to be challenged to go deeper in understanding what makes you and your inner world tick. As always, I'd love for you to rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you'd like to collect all your podcasts. If you're gaining value or you just really like the podcast, I'd love for you to help me spread the word. As G. B. Stern said, silent gratitude isn't much use to anyone. If you're an Instagrammer, feel free to screenshot an episode, add it to your stories and tag me at therapy for thinkers. If you are not a social media person, totally okay. Just share it with somebody you care about who you think might enjoy it. All right. That's enough rambling for today. I'll catch you guys next time.